Hello, welcome to the Welsh Rugby Podcast by Wales Online. Just before we start, a massive thank you to however you are listening to this podcast. Just a word of warning, we do this podcast three times a week, but we don't always know which day it's going to be. So the only way to get notifications is to subscribe. Why not drop us a cheeky review while you're there? Right, that's enough of that. Let's talk some rugby. I'm Ben James, and today we've got a very special podcast. We're joined by a very special guest. I'm not oh, thank ta- you. I'm not talking about you, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> We're joined by none other than Sam Warburton, Cardiff Blues, Wales, British and Irish legend. I can't help but say you've got a really good podcast voice. You just started off there and I thought, you've got a really good... And I've spoken to you loads of times anyway. I know, yeah. But on podcasts, through these earphones and mics now, you've got a really good podcast you just, voice. You just see me sort of drift from mid-Wales farmer, sort of Dan Lydia-esque to Alan Partridge. <laughs> and voiceover. voice yeah, And you've got a good one, Simon, as well. Thank so, you very yeah, much. I feel like, like you've seen, ever seen Toast of London? I haven't, sorry. I feel, I feel that's what I am like, sort of. Uh, that's, that's a reference you'll get sometimes. So yeah, as I say, we've got um, a really good uh, podcast now that I've been sort of deconstructed. Um, you're here to talk about a new book and also talk about the World Cup. Let's, yeah. yeah let's, let's kick off with the, the new book. Um, me and Simon have both read it and it, it's, it's brilliant, I've got to say. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I mean, I, I did two before, but because you're... You're contracted by, I was contracted by the Blues and the WIU and um, it's a certain amount of control that they need to have over publication as well, understandably so. This one is literally, um, I could do it with pretty much no strings attached, you know, it's like a really honest, and there was stuff I've taken out because I remember when we were doing it, I was like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you this, but once I read it, I might have to take it out because I don't want to be one of those people who goes throwing people under the bus. For, for, yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, it's pointless. That's not what sells a good book. Um, and it's not really important, really. So this one, they sort of said, um, well, rather than just do like a rugby book, uh, to be fair, this was the publisher's idea. They said, because you've gone through so much, because when I started talking to them, they were like, okay, this is going to be a bit deeper than probably what we first imagined. Why don't you make it about, um, so it's a rugby book, of course, because you've gone through some pretty cool things with rugby, with World Cups and Lions, notably. But why don't you make it on uh, leadership as well? So it can hopefully relate to you know business people or people within um, businesses regarding the, the mindset I had around leadership, and then obviously the collision sport itself and the injury. So you can talk about that, and then the emotional sort of drain that it took on on you as well, as well as the physical. So I thought, yeah, that's quite a good idea actually. So trying to sort of incorporate all four of those things with the playing side I mean I would never be able to do that for those listening uh, who don't know you know all players books are ghostwritten these days you know I couldn't sit down and write that it would take me five years but to be fair Boris Starlin who I sat down with and I mean you sit down with him for oh goodness me it's like maybe six days and there's like five hour sittings and you, you meet beforehand to get to know each other and discuss about how you want to shape the book and that so probably like you know 30 hours have gone into it from an interviewing point of view and trying to get all the stuff out and structuring it properly then he went away and wrote it and then speaking to a few people who managed to read the book and I said you know what what do you think because for me when I read it back it's just if you read anything on yourself it's probably seems quite boring because it's just about you you know Uh, they said oh it sounded like I was talking to you so I was like oh great because that's the only that's the main thing you want it to to come across you want it to sound and be like me you know so and I read it back and I did have to say, to be honest, I was like, right, half of the Fs 
you have to take out because I don't think I realise when I start getting heated and like I'm talking about games and collisions, I get quite passionate and I'm getting in the zone again. I start swearing quite a bit. So I was reading it back. I was like, did I swear? I said to Boris, did I swear that much during the uh, interviews and stuff? And he went, yeah, you did. I was like, oh, right, can we just take out a few of those because I'm conscious there could be some teenage boys reading this as well. So, uh, but yeah, it's a mixture of all those things. So hopefully it's a little bit different to just the uh, standard rugby book, really. It was interesting because I, mean, I worked with Martin Williams on his couple of books and did one with Dan as well, Dan Lydia. Yeah. And um, when I was doing it, the, the big thing that I was conscious of was not wanting it to be your voice, but, but the per- person whose yeah. book it, it is. Yeah. And that that's something you, you're really trying to get across their message. And that's what, when I was reading it, it, it felt like I was listening to you. Yeah, so good. I think he's done a good job on that. A lot, a lot of the kind of the rugby episodes, and I was there for them. So it was interesting to sort of get the, the, inside, the inside take on them. But the parts that really struck me were the bits about your life away from rugby or related to rugby. I mean, and without giving too much away, you know, to listeners about what's in the book, the section about where you talk through the whole process of deciding to finish, I found that, you know, quite moving, um, especially section you talk about playing with your daughter yeah. in the back garden. So that was the interesting thing for me was that it was it, it ticked a lot of boxes in terms of having been at those games and getting a bit of an insight and what, what you were thinking at the time and in the dressing room, but also you know that people have lives away from a rugby pitch and yeah, but rugby has a knock on effect on that life. I, I just yeah, I found it yeah. fascinating. No, it thanks. Good. It's um, I guess just say, say when I do a um like a press conference on a Thursday and you guys all turn up and you only have to put a brave face on for quarter of an hour and then you can go back and then you're back into your sort of normal state again and yeah I was I was this um and that's the reason I think I got to where I did in my career I was this ultra competitive I I thought I had an unusual amount of self-belief compared to a lot of people in myself and the team I think that's what perhaps Warren liked about me and people who got to know me liked about me but it doesn't come without its struggles along the way and I just found rugby um so when people say now do you miss it and I've done a lot of um, obviously answer this question a lot of times the people who see me the last two years the first question is oh how's retirement you know like that's what everyone says I'm walking the dog or in the supermarket whatever and they all say sort of sympathetically do you miss it and they sort of like nod their head like a, and tilt their head like in sympathy and without trying to talk take anything away from what the players are going through now because what they're going through now is it is one of the highlights of your career and it's amazing but I say no I, I, I don't like I miss the 80 minutes from the kickoff to the final whistle, I miss that bit. Everything either side, I don't because the nerves, anxiety, and the stress it puts not just me but like my family through. In hindsight, I look back and I'm unbelievably privileged and lucky to have done what I'm done. And I can go into like in my house. So we called my house the other day and they asked to see some memorabilia because there was nothing. There was absolutely nothing up in the house, and I had to take them into. I say the gym. It's not. It's just a converted garage, you know, but. I took him into the the gym and then there's just I just got three little shelves and all I've got in there is just my grogs because I'm really proud of my grogs you know and I will put up the New Zealand and Lions second test I, I swapped with Kieran Reid and I, I got a winning Lions shirt and Kieran Reid shirt I'll put that up but that'll be the only thing I'll put up my whole house and because I, when I go home I want to get escape from all that so now I've retired and I've almost escaped all that I can just look back with the font and just look back on the fond memories now and try and just forget about the tough things you went through but at the time you just think this is tough and I sort of the book starts off in the deep end when I was on the on the on the phone to my mum um 
pre-second test and I was just saying how I, I, I can't do it yeah. and I was ready to jump in a taxi to go to the I was like it was two in the morning in New Zealand but so obviously this wasn't going to happen but I was like hypothetically if a taxi was outside now and my bag's packed I'd jump in it because I just need to I just can't this is just getting on top of me um, but then like you know you figure out a way to get over it yourself and you just sort of you know you realise through experiences then that you've had in the past that you draw upon that you can get through it because it's just a game of rugby and there's people out there going through real struggles when it comes to health and things like that and that puts you puts you back into perspective again you just need to when you're in those real stressful pressurized situations which everyone goes through in their work different pressures but everyone goes through it you just need to have the frame of mind just to write just pick yourself up put yourself out of your own little bubble because it is a little bubble it feels like it's enormous when you're in it but it's just a little bubble and put yourself in the real world of someone else's shoes who's going through a real struggle in life so i try and think like that when i'm walking the dog now like i feel privileged now when i'm walking the dog i've dropped my daughter off to nursery i walk the dog in the morning i'm walking through the woods and there's like you get a lovely bit of sunlight coming through the leaves through the leaves of the trees and stuff i'm thinking there's some people on this earth who've been given the ultimatum that they've got a few months left to live and they know fact that they're terminal and that's it that's got to be so scary knowing that's coming but I've got the luxury that I I got the luxury I don't know I could have one I could have 50 Christmases with my family I don't know but I've got that luxury that I don't know so when these things are happening and these are the things I used to try and think about when I was going through pressurized situations as a player that's what I try and think about and I think I did one press conference remember somebody said about pressure and I was like what we're going through is not pressure like you know being on the front line is pressure being shot at is pressure like you know that's what we're going through we're, we're in a lucky situation so I guess I, I, I delve into the some of the the deeper sort of emotional struggles that I had as a player but then manage to pick yourself right back out of it with a bit of with just a dose of reality really that's what it is in a nutshell it's funny you should mention your family because I one of my abiding memories of the Lions to <coughs> excuse me is um interviewing your dad in in a which tour sorry 13 or 2017 in in Auckland met up with him for a coffee and just chatted to him and I could just see how much it was having an impact on him you know he was stressed out I had him crying at one point oh really (laughs) (laughs) so you you forget that sometimes you know how much it means to your family A the pride but but also you know a bit of fear because you know injuries happen and also they see how much of a toll it takes on you oh, it's things like so when i walk the dog with my dad we pick a very so we walk the dogs now still and when i was playing this was even more meticulously planned we would have to meticulously plan a dog route where we're going to see the least amount of people because <laughs> like, like i said this to my wife so how long are you going to be in your dog walk and i'm saying i could be 30 minutes i could be an hour and a half it depends <laughs> on many people want to debrief and and if we've lost the game People put over in their cars, people come out of the shops, there's guys with their dogs, but and I understand for them it's their only time they're gonna ask like it's like they think, Oh, look at this, what a coincidence, we're walking past Sam and his dad just after they've lost to England or something. But then what they don't realise is that like fifty other people have yeah, thought the same yeah. thing. But when that happens like every international week, it's draining, like it's draining. Even though we, like you still try and tell yourself, I'm lucky, I'm so lucky I'm going through this, you know, as a player. But it's all those tiny little things, and which which I guess people don't see. Um, and then over over time, I remember there's one lady, and she got constantly used to pull over and talk to my dad, <laughs> and uh, she was super enthusiastic, almost to the point where I knew it was annoying my dad because it was just like it was just over the top enthusiasm. And then when we lost to England. It was that game where I, I went off with a neck brace, and yeah, I was fine, yeah. but I was knocked out, um, injured my neck, but I got um, carried off. 
and we lost the game in Twickenham and, and she pulled over again. My dad, it must have been like, and she probably thought my dad was being rude, but she probably doesn't realise it's probably the 20th time that he's been interrupted when he's just trying to have a quiet dog walk and like, you know, worrying about his boy's health. And she started moaning about the game and why we lost. And I think he just lost it and said, well, when your son goes off in a neck brace, and I'm not going to swear, but there was a swear in this, I, I couldn't give a damn what happens to the game. Yeah. Um, but I guess people sometimes don't realise that side of things. When I retired, I said to my mum and dad, because it all happened so quick, which is why it didn't really get out. It did happen so quickly from the moment I decided that I'm not going to continue to coming out. Um, it happened really quick. And um, my dad was my dad was gutted then because he knows he's never going to... He's grown up watching me and my brother from we were like six years of age playing football and stuff. My brother stopped playing, obviously. I've stopped playing. So he knows those days are over forever until he has grandkids maybe. But... Um, but my mum punched the air like she was so happy because she's seen physically what I've been going through and emotionally and all that she's just like I just want you to be happy Sam and even my brother said um, when I finished he said I don't want to sound like a bit of a drip Sam he said it feels like I got my brother back since you finished because I'm just so much more relaxed day to day not worrying and I think a lot of that was the captaincy if I wasn't captain and I sort of said this before and I said if I wasn't captain I might still be playing I think it's true because because being captain, I've, I've been almost used to just ex- like aiming to be number one all the time because you have to be as captain. If I wasn't, maybe then, maybe I'd be more content if I was on the bench for the national team or for the Blues or whatever and just ride out my career. But because I was so, and I got used to, and I got the bug of just wanting to be number one all the time, I just thought if I can't get to number one, I, I don't want to continue because I don't want people to remember me as a not very good version of myself. And if people watch me playing, and said, oh, Sam's not as good as he used to be. Ellis, Jenkins, Josh Navidi, James Davis, Ollie Griffiths, all these boys are, are better than him. In my head, because I just had this level of belief on myself, I'd be thinking, well, that's because my body can't get me to the physical heights that I wanted to get to. And yeah. But I don't want that perception. And even if those players were better than me outright, which could have happened, I, d- I don't want that perception. I only want to be... I only wanted to play if I could, if I knew I could be the best version of myself and I couldn't guarantee that at all. I didn't think my body was going to be able to get to that point, which is why I, I decided to, to, to hang my boots. But I've always cursed people, not cursed, I've always felt sorry for. And I'm sure if you could ask David Hay, would he choose to come back again? He might say no now. You know, he finished and like, he still is. He's a he's an iconic boxer. Unbelievable career. But he came back, wanted a bit of the pie at heavyweight again didn't quite work out as he would have planned and I just thought oh, I don't want to I don't want that to happen you know yeah. even though I miss playing now and I do I see the boys playing of course you miss the glory of playing and being with the boys and the 80 minutes of being on the stadium it's incredible but sometimes you just got to wake up and smell a coffee and realise that you've had your day really mm. You mentioned the captaincy there and obviously it's one of the key parts of the book and also we're heading into a World Cup now so it's probably fitting that we sort of talk about your first World Cup experience in hindsight, that's the captaincy probably from the outside, like from where I was sat, probably Psy as well. It, it it did sort of seem all sort of smooth sailing and sort of on the outside, but oh no, as we yeah. know from the book, <laughs> it, it probably really wasn't, was it? I was at um, recently. I was down West Wales. I love going down West Wales for a break every now and then. And my my mother and father and I got a car around down there, so I was there and uh, they were watching S four C and they were replaying the. Um, recently one of the 2011 games and they played the Wales and Ireland game in the quarter final and they are oh, let's watch it and I haven't watched one of those games since eight years ago I, I don't wa- I haven't watched it back anything and I was like oh oh go on then and I just watched the last 20 minutes and like I, I was pleasantly surprised I was watching I was like 
flipping heck, I was quite good. That was really good. I was like, geez, that, yeah. I was just like flying into everything. It makes you realise that I was like 22, I had no regard for my body whatsoever. Kind of like all the young back rowers, you know, all these young back rowers coming through. And they are. It's amazing to see you. Like you see a 20 to 22 year old back rower. They are flying into things like a missile. You have no regard for your body. But obviously it starts taking its toll. I remember saying, oh, I'm not going to make 30 when I was younger. And uh, oh, if I get into my young 30s, I'll be really happy. I'll finish probably 31. Because I was planning on this World Cup. You know, I thought this would be brilliant to be to finish. And then I was hoping to probably just play the rest of the season at the Blues, finish with the Cardiff Blues, and then that was it. Um, so even now it's quite difficult because I'm like, oh, it still feels like there's John Davis, Lee Halfpenny, Dan Bigger, all these boys who I played against at like under 14s, under 15s level. And like, and even some of them are under 11s. We come through the academy together, play for age group together. So it almost feels like that, like because my, my generation of players are still there, I still want to be there with them. And I feel like I want to help them and I want to like, you know, lead this team still, but you just have to accept that you can't. And because they've got such a great group going anyway, and they've had a brilliant, brilliant run since I finished. So it's soft, it kind of softened the blows. I knew I wasn't leaving them in a bad place because there were so many great players in that team. But yeah, 2011 was... Um, Probably, I look back, that was by far my best playing days. You know, that was just pre-injury, pre... Like, I was just like, I was naive, you know, not in a good way, you know, which is, you know, you're not worrying about what... You don't know what's going to come, you know. You're not worrying about all the pressure that might come with having a good World Cup and stuff. You just go out there and just let rip for eight weeks and see what happens. But looking back, that was by far my best sort of probably two months of my career. It was funny because uh, the Ireland game, I watched it back as well the other week. And... Um, that to me, there's two games from your career which stand out for me. It was that one and the same season in a way. I think it was um, England at Twickenham where you put the tackle in yeah. to a large, and that was 2012. Yeah. I mean, you, you were absolutely sort of, <clears throat> ironically, at the peak of your powers, very, very young. You yeah. know? The nature of the way you played the game meant that over the next eight years, seven or eight years, the injuries just came and it was a constant battle, wasn't it? But I mean, the, the fascinating thing was I always remember, because I didn't go out to that World Cup, I think I... Our little friend Andy went out, and uh, <laughs> I watched the um, I watched the semi final in Landaff Rugby Club with my son. So eight years ago now, yeah. eight years ago, and I always remember the France game. Um, the, the, the stadium was full, if you remember. Yeah, back here, yeah. it was just an incredible couple of days. At everyone, nine in the morning. Yeah, every, every, I remember being in the office here, and people were wearing red into work. It was yeah, a really, it. really surreal week. And I remember watching that semi final, and I'm probably going to touch on it now, but. Um, when you had the incident with Clark, McClurk and St. Clark, I remember watching it. I think the sound was down. It's one of those everyone noisy in a rugby club. And it must have been a minute, a minute and a half before anyone in the place realised you'd been sent off. So that was when, I was when you mentioned about Neil Jenkins' reaction. He couldn't. Yeah. He thought you had yellow card. told me to keep warm, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, I, but, I, mean, I thought he was going to knock me out when I told him I'd have read. You know, he's just so surprised and shocked. It was just crazy. It's probably an episode of your career you've talked about as much as anything, really. That. Yeah. But now you look back on it, can you remember how you felt the very second you were shown the red card? Um, I do. Uh, because when I put the hit in, I remember thinking that that was going to look amazing on the highlight reel. Because <laughs> I, if you actually watch back, I got I went to jack limb straight away. I got yeah. the ball on my chest. I remember thinking, right, I like I thought they'd target me because I made an error at the back of the line out the week before against Ireland. So oh, the obvious thing is the French are going to come down the back. But what's great, and without trying to sound too technical, is when they jumped in the middle of the line out, it means we got two or three potential jumpers or lifters who are free. So I can just, and it was Dan Lydia. So I remember at the back of our line out didn't engage in any lift. 
because they didn't need to. So whenever that happens as an open side, every time you can just say, and it was Lids at that point, I went, Lids, take nine. And I don't have to worry about nine running whatsoever. All I can do is just completely unload on which whoever is the first threat, which you read on the way, but normally nine or blind, uh, 10 or blindside wing. 10 was way deep and it was only Vanton Clerk. So I thought, well, I can just empty it on him. So I remember just hitting him as hard as I could. And at the time it didn't feel anywhere near as it, it didn't feel as bad anywhere as it looked. You know, I, when I sat down on the bench after I looked up on the big screen and I watched it back, I remember th- at that point I remember thinking that is like, that's harsh. I don't, that's not a red, but I watched it back and then it did look a lot worse. And then that's when the guilt came in. So when I got given the red, I, I've always thought, like, I hate the petulant footballers who yeah. complain at referees. So I always thought to myself, if ever that happened, and I only ended up my career with, like, one red and I think like three yellows or something, like, for a seven, which is, like, you know, like, there's hardly anything. But I remember just thinking, right, just, and there's going to be millions of people watching when I walk off, and they're going to zoom in on my face, just walk off and just don't show any emotion, just keep it together completely. Um there's nothing you can do there's absolutely nothing you can do so um i disagreed with it and i said straight away i thought it was a red um and yeah they released laws that week which i wasn't aware of because there was stuff going on in the group stages about horizontal tackling but if you watch the quarterfinal i did exactly the same to stephen ferris i did exactly the same to ron lugara i wasn't told not to do it like it was the dump tackle i, I grew up on dump tackling you know that was when I used to play for my school witches, I used to make sure I dump tackled someone at least a few times a game because that was just my way of stamping my authority on people. But that one escalated out of control. Obviously, I'd never wanted to hurt or injure anyone. Mm. Um, so yeah, I wanted to pick him up and I wanted him to put him down hard, but never on his head. I'm not stupid. Do you know what I mean? Never on his head, on their back, of course, and legally. But I remember when it happened and I did pick him up, I remember thinking, whoa, this is spun out of control. So I just thought the best thing to do was let him go. Um, but when I went to my hearing, that was the worst thing I could have done because then it, I, you know, they say if you let someone go once they pass horizontal, then you're just not looking after them. Yeah. But I did it because I just panicked and just didn't know how to stop this from cascading yeah. out of control. So I thought I was doing the right thing by just being like, whoa, I'm just going to leave him. Um, but if I held on to it, maybe it would have been safer. So I remember just walking off and there was a camera about five five meters in front of me not even that a few meters in front of me for the rest of the half just waiting for me to like show some emotion or whatever and I just had to keep it together but that was probably like and I look back and like they're like someone said would you change it I'm like no because I think I wouldn't change it because I think we might not have gone on to have the success for the two years after so we went on and then won a a grand slam then we won another six nations and then we you know had 13 boys who beat the Lions in the test game uh, for, for against Australia, you know, two years after, I think it helped shape a lot of that team. And like, you have to go through adversity sometimes to come through the other end. Maybe if you hadn't have gone through that experience and we had the rub of the green, we wouldn't have probably matured as a squad. So someone said, "Would you change it?" But no, I, I've always been a believer. I think things happen for a reason. And almost that, I thought I was going to come home as a complete villain, but I came home. And weirdly, like I, I don't know if you someone said to me pre World Cup. You're going to get sent off, but come home and everybody, your reputation is going to go through the roof for the better times 10. I'm like, well, how is that possible? But like that almost what happened, it sort of catapulted me into like a, from a, a rugby perspective, like a world recognition really, which I wasn't used to whatsoever. And I still live like it now. Just I just live a very simple, normal life in the same village I'm from. But the attention around myself was just... It was it was crazy to adapt. When you're 22, 23, it's like a very unusual thing to go yeah. through. But um, it was when my granddad passed away six weeks later-ish, about six weeks. So I was doing interviews every day, for, like all the time people were trying to get in touch with me when I got back home. 
And then the BBC, I was doing an interview, I think it was with Jason Mohammed, and he asked me again about the World Cup and the red card. And that morning I lost my granddad. And I just said, I remember the text come through of my dad, granddad died. And I was going in to see him every day after training. When I was younger, as a teenager, my mates were going out on a Friday. Me and my twin brother, Ben, would always stay in every Friday because we used to watch Friday Fight Night or Super League with him. It was just our thing. We stayed in with granddad and watched sport. So then when he passed away, I sort of said, well, and I was gutted about the red card, obviously, and I felt terribly like I let the whole country down. But I said, because I lost my granddad this morning, I said, there's much more important things in life to worry about than a red card. No disrespect to rugby or fans, but like family's health and well-being is so much more important. So that kind of put, that put the red card to bed for me and sort of give me a bit of perspective. And that was when I talked about earlier about perspective and taking some of your little bubble. That was probably the first time I got a dose of reality and perspective really, which helped me then deal with the, the pressures and strains of professional rugby. Have you ever spoken to Alan Roland much over the years? <clears throat> um, no, <laughs> surprisingly. But I was on the bench with, um, I mean, I was on the bench with Alan Wynn. We were both coming back from injury won Six Nations and it was away in Italy so it must have been two th- so we've had the Blues I'm trying to think we got the Blues in 2020 we got the Blues at home and we so it was in 2014 mm. so it's been three years later um, sorry for figuring that figuring that out, out loud but yeah it's the three Blues we always play on an even number right, in there yeah. at home uh, sorry away so it must have been 15 sorry no because that was super anyway doesn't matter sorry guys <laughs> I saw Alan Roland away from home and against Italy and I was on the bench of Alwyn and um it was the second game of the tournament then, and he was a touchy, touch judge. So it's still the same as like people might like to know. It's still the same at grassroots as it is at pro level. They come in um, before you go out for your warm-up. You've got to get your studs out. They all check your studs, check there's nothing on them, you know, and that's it. Um, so I remember like Bradley wanted to wind Alan Roland up. So Bradley was there as well. So he, he gave <laughs> him his, he just looked at him deadpan and gave him his, showed him the bottom of his trainers and didn't even make <laughs> eye contact. And, um, <laughs> and then he came round and then I showed him my boots um, but like they, you know, it's like they just come along really quick, just brush in with the hands, brush every bottom of everyone's boots, just go around the the, pit, the train as quick as they can. I was ready to engage in a little bit of conversation, just to kind of break the ice, sort of thing. But no eye contact was made whatsoever. Checked our wins boots, walked out. I remember looking. I was like, oh, that was strange. Like, I thought you'd at least like just yeah. shake hands, just acknowledge each other. I don't know. So then I just thought, oh, that's just confirmed what maybe everyone else is thinking. Like, um, But then little, the, then the game went, made no contact whatsoever, which is fine. He was obviously just in his own little zone doing what he does pre-match. But then he refereed a Barbar's game for Wales and I was captain and this was at home. And I thought he wasn't going to referee a game at home, but they gave him a game at home. Can't remember what year this was. Must have been a year or two later. And it was actually his last international game as a referee. And it turns out we spoke pre-match Came in, spoke to the captains in the front rowers like they always do. Spoke with myself, was really like engaging and did the coin toss, had a laugh. It was really relaxed. Did the game like the most I've probably spoken to a referee. And I don't speak to referees a lot, but just like, just a really nice and relaxed and enjoyable. And I probably said that that was probably one of my most enjoyable experiences from a relationship with a referee and a captain. So then I suddenly then I realised it's nothing personal. He was just like in, and I saw him when it, when the red card was given our analyst showed me an exact same situation about three months before in a European game, end of the season, I think it was for, for Wasps. Somebody did a tackle and bang, red went out straight away. So he said, it's not personal. That's just the way he deals with that situation, yeah. that tackle. So there was no um, there was no intent or it wasn't like, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, premeditated like decision at all. So, and then that game with the Barbars was so enjoyable and we actually got on really well. 
he actually become then and I for like one of my favorite refs that I've had in the game like we, weirdly so um yeah really nice guy I think a lot of him and that was just the way and to be fair I should have known that you shouldn't tip players past the horizontal so it was a little bit I guess poor for myself I just never thought I'd be in that situation but yeah funnily you went from being my least favorite ref obviously to one of my favorite refs so yeah quite strange that really well, what's quite interesting you sort of mentioned in the book the, the pre-match meeting with the referee obviously yeah. with Roland, yeah. and the fact that there was nothing sort of brought up in terms of no, to watch weird. out with yeah I, I always hated those meetings but Gats would always say to me oh I'm meeting the ref um, so we'd always be after team run on a Friday he'd say I'm meeting, um, I'm meeting Alan the ref and we did this with the Lions a bit as well um, do you want to come along and sometimes I'd go along sometimes I wouldn't but on this occasion it's a big game yeah yeah I'll, I'll come along and let's just touch base beforehand so we went to his team hotel and we all sat, we sat down, shook hands and I sat down and I just remember he said, well, I haven't got anything. So um, unless there's something that you've got, I'm, I'm fine. So we were just like, oh, right. Okay. That's quite strong. Just to start the conversation. Um, and Gats would talk about certain things, could be breakdown, scrum, whatever, blocking and kick chase, all these sorts of things that you just make aware. Because we study the opposition team and we're like, it looks like they've got away with this. Can we just make sure that they do roll away and it's the same for us. If we do it, ping us straight away and we'll take on the chin, but they've been getting away with this, we feel. Can you just look at it, yeah. please, you know? Those sorts of things is what goes on in referees meetings. But um, yeah, and he just it was a very short meeting. Like Literally, I can't remember it being more than a few minutes long as we walked out and we were just like, oh, that was, um, that was strange, you know? But that was just the way it was, you know? We didn't think, but I just think in such a big game and I guess I respect him for it he just didn't want to get emotionally attached to anyone from either side which is maybe like you know subconscious that, that's what you're trying to do really you're just trying to get a referee on side really and just be like for me I've always found just being human with people and, and a referee like rather than just treating them like a piece of meat and shouting at them you're going to get a lot more back from someone if you're just yeah. natural and sympathetic with them and just human so I guess that's what we were trying to do we just break down that barrier but yeah I guess he didn't let that happen it was um I remember you coming back from that, and it was I, I. I noticed a slight change in you, in that I think you. I don't know. Before it had been everything had been happening in a whirl. I, I sensed you becoming a bit more reflective after that, and maybe sort of realizing like you know the highs and lows. Because up until then, it's been a, a roller coaster for you. Oh, <clears throat> I remember um, Xavier Rush. I was talking to at the Blues, and he said Richie McCaw is one of the greatest sevens because he never has a bad game. And uh, I remember thinking, yeah, like it was probably my started in 09. I only played the end of that season, then it went 9, 10, 10, 11. So, yeah, I probably had two and a half seasons. I remember thinking, yeah, that's how I feel. Like, I just haven't, I thought every game I played for Wales, I was up there with like a potential man of the match contender, and it just felt like nothing could go wrong. Like, I just almost felt invincible. I was just like, oh, I'm just, I can't not play well. And that was the first setback. Um, and then 2012, there was a lot of setbacks as well because then the injuries really crept in from then. I'm not sure it was the accumulation of just, it doesn't sound long, but obviously for my body, and I'll be honest, right, I've genetically been given a terrible body from an injury perspective. My brother retired at 21. He had nerve damage to his shoulder, probably similar to what I had, but he didn't have the medical care when he was 15 when he suffered his injury to get it treated. I'm a skinny kid playing rugby. Like, I'm not built and... You know, I'm doing contact daily with guys naturally two, three stone heavier than me. Like I'm not built to play rugby whatsoever. So yeah, I was given a bad body physically to play rugby. Um, and then from then on, I was just picking up niggles, picking up niggles. Got through the world, uh, the 2012 Grand Slam with the skin of my teeth. Didn't feel I contributed anywhere near as much as I wanted. Then I got my first nerve injury. Didn't play for three months. Then went out to Australia and played the best seven in my eyes in the world and David mm. Pocock. 
didn't do myself justice and then I had a downward spiral for about nine months then going into that Lions tour until I got to 2013 Six Nations and it wasn't until the last two games of the tournament I just literally slapped myself across the face and told myself to sort it out had a good game against Scotland man of the match played against England 30 points to three and we all know what happened then and then all went out on the Lions and was great but yeah the injuries for me is why because I was physically not able to play at the level I want to a lot of the time that's why I then mentally struggled with the game because it sort of just goes side by side you know and I found it really hard I always grown up being this being a good athlete I, I've realized genetically I'm, I'm very lucky that I was you know, quick powerful fit strong and all that but when the injuries come in I said no, I couldn't do what I wanted to so then I don't blame people there was times I was playing I'll be honest, like, I always say, without trying to sound uh, macho, I was a tough player in the sense that I know I play games where I, and I know for a fact other players wouldn't have played them. And I can guarantee every single time I went off injured, I had, I always had something. I never played the next couple of weeks. I always had something. And I'm not going to obviously call people out, but I know there's guys who go off and then they play the next week. I'm just thinking, how does that happen? Like, yeah. and my, Whenever I went off, my mum would always text me straight away asking how I am because she knows I'd have a scan and something was wrong it always happened and uh but i just felt that if i wasn't like that i would have played even less games if i tried to protect myself there's so many games i thought i was under par i know i was probably only like a five or six out of ten but i couldn't not play for the embarrassment of not playing but i get but a lot of people don't see that side of things so i kind of look back at my career with mixed emotions i'm proud because i know when i was fully fit and i was on it i always felt oh great i always played well it was fine there's, there was half a time, which, and I know somebody criticised me. I'm like, they probably watched me play, and I, I had a lot of games where I probably was nowhere near 100%. So, and I know somebody could watch me maybe two or three times on telly in the stadium and go, I thought Sam Walton was a lot better than that. Uh, he wasn't as good as I thought he was, but I just know I'm like, and then these people just, they, they hold that against me forever until they see me have a better game. But I just knew that was the way I played. I could, and I sort of mentioned in the book, I could, only, I could only physically and emotionally peak, I reckon, maybe like 10 times a year, max. I, I couldn't peak more than that because otherwise I, my body would just be gone. I went. That's why I didn't sign... Well, I didn't sign in France for a few reasons. Two reasons. The main one was because I was Welsh captain at the time. I went out to Toulon. I think I mentioned it in there in 2013 to sign for them potentially. But I was Welsh captain. It would have been a terrible message to send out to kids that you sort of go into France for the money, let's be honest. you know, Nine times out of 10, you go out there for the money. And secondly, I could never play for Toulon 30 times a year like I play for Wales. I physically can't do that, you know? So they were the two reasons I didn't go out there. But that's the one bit I look back on with frustration. I'm like, I can look at someone like Alan Wynn. Like, it's just incredible how durable he is, not just physically, to go through what he's gone through emotionally as well, to get yourself up for a test match, including Lions games now in tours, 130, 40 times. It takes a lot of emotional energy to start on a Monday and you go up on this roller coaster, building and building and building on a Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you're peaking at game day and it's an enormous amount of stress and pressure. Then that you finish the game, sometimes good or bad, and you come crashing back down on a Sunday and you've relaxed again. Then on Monday, you start creeping up again and that pressure and anxiety all starts building. When you go through that, and he's gone through that now for 15 years, I, I can't believe how even emotionally he's still got the energy to do it. You know, I found I was emotionally just as drained as I was physically so yeah that's why for me like you know true legendary status would be someone like him like the way he's just managed to keep playing at top level is extraordinary it's funny you talk about your body I mean you're just sitting here next to you I mean it's clear your body shape has changed since you since you finished you know um 
I don't know how much you've lost. Sadly, I've gone in the opposite direction. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah. how, much, how much weight have you shared? Um, since, since it's probably only half a stone, which doesn't sound much. But when it's half a stone and your body composition's changed as well. So, you know, say, I'm trying to, to explain it. So say uh, I was probably 16 stone, 16 and a half stone playing. I'm probably about 16 now. Right. But when I was 16 and a half, I was a lot more muscle, a lot less fat. When yeah. now that ratio has probably changed a little bit to more fat, you know, You're than muscle. Now. I'm just normal. <laughs> yeah. Um, and I'll never let myself go fat, you know, like yeah. I'm just not, I'm just too vain, to be honest. You know, I, that's why I still train. Um, but I don't, I was saying to one of the guys, you know, I, turned out, I don't have to eat the five meals a day that I used to. I don't like, it sounds stupid. People say, what do you mean you don't like eating? I'm like, I don't like eating. Like, I don't mind eating a bit of brekkie. Like this morning, if I come in, I just had a bowl of cereal and a fruit smoothie. But if I was playing, I would have had a massive bowl of porridge full of nuts and fruit and honey to get extra calories and sugar in. Then I would have probably had a protein shake and I would have had like a four egg omelet with chicken and all sorts and cheese and ham and <laughs> pepper. I'm like, I don't have to force that down me anymore. Then I have a pint of milk as well to top it off. Like I used to eat that every morning, just standard. Now it's so nice just bowling. And this isn't an endorsement. I'm not, <laughs> I just I just like a little bowl of Cheerios, bit of fruit smoothie, happy days. And the cereals are available. <laughs> yeah. Very nicely done. Yeah. Honestly, on, on my daughter's life, that's all right. I'm not a sponsor of any cereal. If I was, it'd be Cocoa Pops or something. So I'd have some chocolate. But uh, but yeah, that, that's, that's how little things of your life change, really. But uh, I still keep fit, but I don't have to be as, as heavy as I used to be. It's interesting you talk about injuries because then, your next World Cup experience, it wasn't just you who was sort of going through the mill injury-wise, was it? 2015 was it was walking wounded, wasn't it? Uh, that's the thing with pro rugby now when I get parents of young, um, ambitious parents when they have young kids and they're like, oh, he's going to be the next like Alan Wynn or George North or Lee Halfpenny. And I'm just thinking, oh, don't put that pressure on your kid now. Like, just let him be, you know? Um, like, oh, he's injured. He's got a bad shoulder. He's had a shoulder up and he's 17, 18. Uh, what advice can you give him? Like, what can he do? And like, I don't want to. Uh, I still want to be an ambassador for the game. The game's amazing, and I want as many people to pick up rugby ball and play pro rugby as he can. If I could go back in time, I'd do it all over again. It's incredible. But if you want a ten-year career as a normal, regular prof- playing professional, it is impossible. I think it's impossible to go a ten, twelve-year career now without without an operation. So I'm like. That's just the sport we're in. Like, I think everybody accepts the risks when you go in a car. You accept the risk when you go on a plane. That, and you know, it's one in a hundreds of thousands of chance that something might happen, but it can happen. And it's the same when you go on a rookie pitch. You just accept that it might happen. You might get injured. You know. So, I say, don't worry. Like, it's he's probably just been dealt a bad card sooner than the next player. If he doesn't have it now, he'll have it by the time he's 25 or 28 or 29. You'll you'll have it at some point. So I kind of like, that's just the way it is. And that 15 World Cup was just, yeah, that was, I've never been involved in a squad which was just riddled with so many injuries. And I'm glad we didn't win that game in the quarterfinal because I remember I was battered. I wouldn't have been able to play the semifinal if we had got through. My body was in bits. And I remember there was a couple of other players on the, I was on the beds with. I can't, I couldn't, I can't remember who. But I remember we all said, if we got through, say we did manage to beat South Africa, they didn't score that try on the blind side at the end, and we played New Zealand in the semi. And I think we probably would have lost another three or four players. Wouldn't have got back fit. I, I think that would have then been one step too far. And I actually would, looking back, I'd rather go out the way we did than place New Zealand in a semi and perhaps go lost by 30, 40 points, which really would have been tainted the, like that the reputation of that squad. So. I think in a weird, which is why it kind of felt like unfinished business from a World Cup perspective. I thought, well, there's 19. We're all going to be here for 19, so now we can put this right in 19. 
which is why it's obviously a little bit bitter now and a bit of pill to swallow. I can't I can't contribute to that. But yeah, that was very unlucky. And I think if we had got through to the semis, it could have been a little bit embarrassing. Don't get me wrong, if we had a full squad, that would have backed ourselves the whole way. But with the depleted squad we had, a semi-final I think would have been one step too far. And you had, the, I mean, in, in the midst of it though, you had the game against England where yeah. we, we touched on injuries. It was like emergency ward 10. You know, Amos <laughs> came off, Liam yep. came off yeah. and you ended up... Scott, I, Scott? I, think you ended I can't up, even remember it was that many. Well, you yeah, had, I, can't. I think you went, Scott Williams went off. You ended up, I think, with two fly halves and I think uh, Lloyd, Jamie was about the only one playing in his yeah. normal position. Lloyd Williams, you made well, on, on the pre match uh, Before the World Cup, Lee Arfin, he got injured. It was just ridiculous. And yet you beat England in that game which I think a lot of people sort of in recent times I mean we had the 33 win over England you, you've talked about you know the, the, the World Cup in 2011 but I think that 2015 game and you, you touch it on in, in the book just as an emotional occasion given everything you had to deal with during the game given a few of the, the dirty tricks England played before the game does that possibly stand as your your favourite day in a Wales jersey? Um, at the time I had I didn't appreciate it at the time anywhere near as much as I should have. So um, I just thought it was pressure wise, it was huge. It felt like the highest profile game I've ever played in because in New Zealand, when you're in Lions or Australia with the Lions or in World Cups away from home, you're on the other side of the world. So you don't see what's going on back home. You're aware of it and your Twitter feed's busier than normal, but you don't see it. Yeah. This game, you could see everything because it was obviously in Twickenham. And like, you know, England's record at Twickenham is incredible. Like they got a brilliant home record. Never mind given the injuries we had and never mind it was a home World Cup. So you had those bits of motivation as well. And the fact we won, now I look back and I think, geez, that was one of Wales's greatest ever victories yeah. given the circumstances. It was incredible. But at the time, for me, and this is where like as a player, when I probably said these things, I wasn't lying. That was just another step on the ladder and just another little box ticked on the way to a World Cup final. So didn't really bother, not bother. Of course we loved it and we celebrated like crazy after the game because we knew... Not because we didn't think that we couldn't win. It was almost just the relief that, that this huge prof- huge high-profile game, which had been anticipated for the last two years, pretty much, since the draw was made, 18 months, was over. And we could just move on. Like That was almost the relief of it, because we always believed we were better than England. That's not disrespectful to England. We believe we were better than anyone. That's just what you've got to be like, you know? Yeah. But it's quite brash to come out in a press conference and say that, because you don't want people... You don't want that to spill over to arrogance. But that's just what most professional environments are thinking. So... We only proved to ourselves what we already knew, but it was just the relief that it was done. And obviously you do, like, you always can believe it, but until you achieve it, it's a completely different thing. You know, you actually got that yeah. satisfaction that you've won. So at the time, I remember going out, walking out onto the bus, I remember seeing loads of Welsh fans hanging around by our bus. Must have been thousands of people still. And this is like, you know, an hour and a half after the match now. Running up to us, hugging us, we had tried to have our security, <laughs> batting everyone off. And I was like, oh my God, this has been like, <laughs> to the fans, it was like life or death. I look back at it in hindsight now with so with such like more fond memories than I did because at the time I would have said, oh, 30 points of three in 2013 was way better than this because we actually won something. But I look back, when you actually take in everything into account, um, that was a absolutely enormous Welsh victory yeah. away from home. I must admit, it was one of the very few occasions with my impartiality slipped. And I, I, I do uh, remember standing at this high fiving really? down my path, which did not <laughs> yeah. go down well with the English press corps, you can imagine. That's but, it, we're all fans. like well. you know, So, like, players, journalists, um, supporters in yeah. the stadium, like, we're all fans at the end of the day. So, 
that's the thing now I, I can I can't help it when I was a player or if now as a pundit I'm like, I've, like and sometimes I still drop in like we wait I'm like yeah. well, of course I'm Welsh I, I want Wales to win more than anything and it's so hard talking about them in a negative way but and that's something I've like, almost like been really find, finding the hardest thing to adapt to but when players win like we're just as and I think I was sort of chatting to you off um off camera and off the mics earlier about there was a video that the boys were filming of all us celebrating because yeah. the, the temperature was up in the changing room which like people might think why is that bad well like you know it's, you've, when you're in a high temperature room you're something really lethargic and stuff and I generally don't think uh, it was any anyone from the England high performance setup. it could have been someone who worked in the stadium messing around <laughs> lights were coming on and off and we were in pitch black trying to get strapped up we're thinking geez like you know someone's having a, like, it's too much of a coincidence you know so when we won we went back in the change room after we went mental we had like a squad song we always used to sing and chant and we were smack banging the walls and stamping and it wasn't just the 23 players it was like probably the um, the 9, 10 guys who weren't involved in the squad the 20 coaching staff physios masses medics coaches it was brilliant and we were all just in it together and like the, the room was probably vibrating but that, that was really special but I love people to see that because how they're reacting in the, in the stands is how we're reacting in the yeah. change rooms, you know, yeah. so we're all fans in it together. It's amazing. That's the thing with this book, you know, reading it last night, it's so many of these sort of games I experienced as a fan. I remember watching 2011, I'm going to make you feel old now, in school. Um, <laughs> How do you think I feel? <laughs> they had, it, had it on in Welsh lesson, get the, yeah. old, uh, get the old projector That's out right. of front. But that, that 2015 <clears throat> game, I just remember, I was, I think I was in some student house in Roth, watching it with a load of English people. I've just never watched a game feeling more nervous, thinking, how, how can we possibly pull this back? Yeah. But reading the book, it's even more amazing when you think that you and Dan did it for about three nights uh, we're doing ghost ghost hunting with Derek Akora. <laughs> oh, God, man. So, uh, well, it kind of come out with the news. I remember it was on national news. that. So, yeah, going back to Thursday, we normally stayed on Richmond Hill, a hotel called Richmond Hill Hotel, and it's quite a bit busier there. And you can imagine pre-Wales-England match in the middle of Richmond, that's going to be busy. So, Remember, team manager, and we were in a leadership meeting. He was like, right, we're going to, should we stay in a slightly more private hotel? So we said, yeah, let's do that. We agreed. It's five minutes further away from Twickenham, but we'd have a bit more peace and quiet, you know, and it's quite close to the London Irish training ground for team run. And we're like, oh, no, perfect. That's spot on. Let's do that. So we turned up and um, it was called Oaklands Park Hotel. And like anything pre 1900s, I get a bit creeped out, you know? <laughs> so I got into our room. And obviously, I was room with Dan Lydia, which I room the majority of my career with as six and seven. I'm like this is a bit creepy, this hotel, isn't it? Like, if, like I wouldn't surprise if this was haunted or something, you know, just messing around. He went, "Oh no, this is haunted, isn't it?" And I sort of like nervously laughed, like, "What do you mean, like the like haunted?" He goes, "Well, no, this is haunted, genuine." And I think he knows I don't like that stuff because and he was winding me up because his he's from a farm in Mid Wales and he says stuff happens on his farm. So I'm like, what sort of stuff? And he tells me, I'm like, well, don't that freak you out? He's like, well, no, because it's been in the family for hundreds of years. It's obviously past family. I don't know whether Dan's like, you know, these people might be more, um, some people are just more, what's the word I'm looking for? Like open to seeing these things. Some people just point blank. They're like, nah, nah, no ghosts, never see them. But some people like, you know, you hear stories, they yeah. can not see things. I'm not trying to make up Dan's a weird paranormal <laughs> kind of freak, but you know, he's obviously more susceptible to that stuff. 
But anyway, I thought he was just joking. But so as we were in the room, just putting our bags down, I sort of went on our bed and I was just like, just just for a laugh and like more for like, because I was actually panicking. Just went on like my Google search and was like, Oatlands Park Hotel Haunted. Just see what comes up. And then it come up. It's Surrey, I believe, isn't it? Come up. Top five haunted hotels, Surrey. Number three, Oatlands Park Hotel. I thought, oh my God. I went, Liz, oh my God. I was like, this place is haunted. So I was reading the stories on it. And I was like, it was the room next door to us. I was like, oh my God. And I felt my room. I'm not into all this, but like our room did just have this like weird little energy to it. And maybe it's because it was all, I was playing tricks on my own mind. I don't know. So long story short, we went um, to bed that night and Dan likes the curtains open. So the moonlight sort of comes in, not pitch black, but just yeah. dark, you know. And then um, I heard this massive bang in the middle of the floor. So like we've been probably dropping off like an hour and... Um, I like oh I was terrified. I remember like our beds were at like right angles to each other. So my duvet was like up over my face. <laughs> but I had my eyes out and I was like I, I can't swear obviously, but I was panicking, right? But we didn't I didn't speak. I was too scared to even say anything in case it triggered something else. So I looked to my left and I could just see like Dan's head, like a silhouette of like a black head looking up out of his bed like a meerkat, like in panic as well. I reckon we were both up and we sort of laughed at the morning after. We were both awake for like the next half an hour, but too scared to say anything to each other, just in silence, because we didn't know if each other was awake. I didn't even want to go, Dan, did you hear that? Because <laughs> I was like, in case something else happened. Anyway, we woke up the next morning. I had a drug test at six o'clock in the morning as well, knocked on the door. So I had no sleep that night because I was panicking all night about what happened. Then I found my phone in the middle of the floor. So I thought, oh, my phone fell off the bedside. Like, I was stupid, but it fell away quite a far distance. But I thought, I've... Oh, an iPhone doesn't roll two meters when it falls, does it? But we thought, we just thought, ah, just the iPhone fell off, just the way it was, was a bounce off something. So then um, we went fr- went to bed Friday night, similar sort of thing, about 11 o'clock, been in bed for about an hour. And then Dan just threw his duvet sheets open and it's like pitch black now with the light, with the curtains open. And we just staring at the end of his bed. So I was shouting his name now for about 10 seconds. It doesn't sound long, but I was panicking. I didn't know what he was doing. I didn't know if he was trying to freak me out or something. And then he just like slowly turned his head and looked at me and just said, mate, there's a man standing on the end of my bed staring at me. <laughs> and then I was just like, right, he's, I just thought he's dreaming. And then he looked back at the end of his bed and he looked at me again and went, he's gone. So I was like, oh, geez, right, he's, he's obviously <laughs> sleep talking here now. So I got out of my bed and went, you, I grabbed him. I went, are you, are you awake? Are you sleep talking? Because I, I was like quite scared at this point. And he looked at me in the eye, he grabbed me, he said, I'm not lying, mate. He said, there was a bloke like dressed like Henry VIII standing <laughs> on the end of my bed. And I was like, oh, mate. And I was just trying to like justify it. Like, oh, I've seen Darren Brown. He says your brain is like, when you're dropping off, you're much more like, your imagination goes crazy. And he's like, mate, stop being a wimp. There was a ghost at the end of my bed. We didn't sleep obviously all night, right? So we went down, we did breakfast and then, um, you have to put in on the iPads. You stand on the weighing scales. It's got like a, it's on a stand. There's an iPad. You say what you're. Uh, you've probably seen it. The boys in the environment say how well, you, you, how much energy you got. One to five. Any soreness. One to five. You tap the body parts. You know with your fingers and say which bits are sore. Because some guys wake up. You know illness. Whatever. So uh, I filled in this iPad thing because you know guys get ill overnight. Sometimes you know, they need the medics need to know first thing in the morning and the fitness staff jumped on the iPads. We both asleep would have put like you know zero or one. So they come across in front of the boys while we were like having breakfast and we're shattered now. And it's like, Dan, Sam, you've only put one or zero for sleep out of five. Like, what happened? You know, there's all these options like, oh, I felt ill, kids making noises, whatever. 
And they probably the last reaction they heard, I said, well, Lid's saw a bloody ghost, didn't he? And <laughs> everyone was like, whoa, whoa, what's happened here? So then the story, it was just stories all morning about Lid's playing the ghost. It was actually quite a welcome distraction probably from the game. So like the biggest challenge of beating England for me wasn't the fact that like it was the injuries and being away from home in the World Cup for England's home World Cup. It was the fact me and Lid's probably had about five hours kip in two days, somehow managed to play the game, absolutely exhausted after and went to bed. But... Yeah, that was just, and we managed to change rooms then. So after that, we changed rooms. We're like, oh, this room's got a much better energy and feel to it. And it was, it, it was weird. It just, I didn't worry about sleeping then. But that was a weird room. Ask Dan about it. But that was a very strange experience pre England game. It's, it's funny that when you talk then about the England game, and um, I, I remember um, you had a bit of a scuffle with Mr. Brown. Yeah. Who was um, always an interesting character to play against? They should have <laughs> Mike Brown, and it was a it was a full on physical game. And you've had that against Ireland, you've had that against Scotland. You talk about Wales is still we, and yet we think of Sam Warburton, and what we think of as much of anything <clears throat> is the British and Irish Lions, yeah. where all of that goes out of the window, doesn't it? And yeah. Twice you're captain of a group of players who, the rest of the time during your career, you're trying to knock lumps out, or they're trying to knock lumps out of you. I've always wondered how psychologically you get over that and suddenly gel as a group and especially as a captain having to bring everyone together how did you approach that on the two tours you were captain surprisingly very easy yeah um and it's i thought it was gonna be quite difficult but so say in 13 i thought there was gonna be a lot of like like banter and stabbing about the 33 game it wasn't brought up all tour the whole tour wasn't brought up honestly on god's honest truth only towards the end of the tour when we won the third test and we and then we had like three days to enjoy each other's company and then Mike Phillips made sure he brought it up a few times <laughs> uh, when he was drinking, as you can imagine. But going into the games, it's just like, it's completely irrelevant what we've done at country. And the actual dynamics of playing against each other in the Six Nations and going on a Lions tour is exactly the same as having the Christmas derbies for the Welsh regions going to the Six Nations. Yeah. So you're quite used to that. Um, not that you try to be like machine-like, but you're quite used to when you do cross... And I don't want to sound macho at all. When you do cross the whitewash, it, it is just like it goes. And like Dan Lydia was a real good pal of mine. One of my best mates I made through rope. I remember playing through the Dragons. I remember he literally just put me on put me on my backside so hard. I was trying to get a ball back. I was jackaling. And he cleaned me out like there was no tomorrow. And I remember my wife was sat next to his wife. And she was like, oh my God. God, I'm going to tell Dan off so bad for that. That's terrible what he just did to Sam. But like, I would never hold that against Dan. That's just the game. But my wife and who and his wife were really embarrassed about that. <laughs> so they, they, my Rachel was like, are you and Dan okay? I was like, what? Like when he took you out towards the start of the game, I was like, oh, Rachel, that's just rugby. Like that just happened. So I think boys are just used to that, those dynamics. So when you're with the Lions, everybody is genuinely so privileged to be there because like it's the British and Irish Lions. And like it's pinnacle of your career and this is what I always aspired to get to everybody feels so so like lucky and privileged to be there you just do whatever it takes and it's just fundamentally rugby boys are all the same all around the country you, know, you all share that common ground really when you play rugby go to any rugby environment you have the same characters everywhere it's the same on the Lions tour you know it doesn't really change so for me yeah and Gatlin's like you know he likes this at the right time and right place but we had a good drink together in Dublin all the barriers come down People don't care how much they embarrass themselves. Then breakfast next morning is hilarious because everyone's like reciting what happened the night before. And from that moment on, then it was just a brilliant, like most enjoyable tour. I remember the guys here because no one I wouldn't really be happy rooming with. Like we were lucky that I think that's where the whole teamwork thing comes into it and um, getting on together and having good people. I was chatting to the coaches before the seventeen tour and they're like, 
some guys didn't make this tour because they're like they were good players, but they're not good people. So when they're saying, right, we want to pick, so to say now, Maritoji, Joe Marler, Carl Sinclair, Owen Farrell, the English selectors were there, like, good bloke, good bloke, good bloke, top guy, as well as being obviously an awesome player. So when we went on tour, there was none of those off-field, like, awkward dynamics going on because everybody was a good bloke. So they always say when they pick Lions teams, you've got to pick good people as well as good players. So maybe that's why some players didn't make it. I did enjoy your reference to thinking of Sinclair getting on the table and singing Jerusalem. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> that is something I would have liked to have seen, I think. Oh, I thought there was another one. We were playing table tennis, I remember, and he was really competitive, Carl Sinclair. Always on the table tennis table. And obviously being a prop, this, like... If this happened to a scrum half, it wouldn't be anywhere near as funny, but somebody played an amazing shot coming across the net, like a nice sort of like slice, and it went right across. like a, like a So you had to really fly, jump across the table to try and stretch and get it, and obviously landed on the table tennis table, fell flat as a pancake. He was on top of this table tennis table with all the Lions boys around him. And from that moment, that was quite early on the tour. From that moment, he was just a joker for the rest of the tournament, <laughs> just seeing this big prop on top of the table tennis table, flat on the floor. But he was just, yeah, he was great. You know, he was a great character and um, got on with him pretty well. But yeah, he got up in a restaurant, started singing because he was the choir master for England, for Jerusalem, which yeah. is like one of our squad songs. We were having a good meal out in Dublin and um, this is before we went out for the night out. So we were getting on our way at this point and everyone's quite nervous at the choir practice that Gatlin had introduced. So we all thought, this is going to be really embarrassing. It's not going to go down well. <laughs> that galvanised us. Like it was probably, it took us a week to get over that embarrassing stage of singing. And then Carl Sinclair just got up and just started singing the first line of Jerusalem to which then the restaurant all suddenly stopped because then all the Lions boys and not just the players, all the staff then all started belting out Jerusalem. We've been singing it nervously for the last like week or two weeks, not committing to it fully because we're a bit embarrassed. Suddenly we all belted it because Gatlin was like, oh, you're going to have to need to know this off by heart when we land in New Zealand because there's going to be live cameras there and we're going to give them a welcome. We need to sing it. So we can't have any hymn sheets. And maybe nervously, the coaches probably thought, oh, the boys aren't learning this behind closed doors. <laughs> but it was really nice because everybody then sung it up, all four songs. We did all four songs. Then Ken Owen stood up for Wales and then Robbie Enshaw stood up for Ireland. Stuart Hogg stood up for the Scottish song. And we nailed every song off by heart. And that was, for me, that was a really special moment because I realised how much the boys behind closed doors had gone back to their rooms and revised and memorised the songs for each other without telling each other we were doing it. And I think Gatton probably would have saw that. And that's why I just thought, I think we're going to achieve something special because people were willing to do that for each other. And it was such a good laugh. We had such a great time. I just thought, oh, we got a real special team here. So that was the moment I thought we were likely yeah. to do something pretty so good. So it's not just Leonard calls you up to learn. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> not. It's funny you mention that because I know, I know Hayden James. And, yes, um, yeah, he does a... Ian Jones, he, he played player. the piano. In yeah, the, in that's that. right. Yeah, yeah. Funnily enough, I actually, I don't know if I, I've mentioned this on the podcast or ever before, but I was out in New Zealand with the Lions Choir. So oh, I was nice. rooming with Ian Jones the oh, whole, really? throughout New Zealand. So as as he was teaching you the songs, he was also teaching us a lot of the yeah. songs. So, um, oh, you would have said we were terrible to start. We were awful yeah. to start, and we were probably Although, awful to finish. Fair, but we I think think Greg, Greg Laidlaw got up and and built yeah. Highland Cathedral. Oh, sorry, Greg was Highland Cathedral, not, not Stuart Hogg. Sorry, it was Greg. That's right. Yeah, yeah. He, he, I think the players got it quicker than the choir got it. That's been that. <laughs> yeah, but, no, that was good. That galvanised the squad. It was a very good, and that's, they're the things yeah. that like a head coach brings to an environment, which would be completely overseen. Like you're thinking towards kicking strategies, set piece, contact area, but that was one thing he decided to do, which uh, which yeah worked very well. I imagine you lot were using the songs for different reasons. We were using it just to sort of get free drinks in, 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 in bars in Christchurch <laughs> yeah. and all that. Well, it turned out we were just doing it because there's so many Maori welcomes when you go over there. Um, you've got to respond with something. So we did it for that. But it turned out 
whenever we won a song, we were back in the dressing room. We all just belted them all out, you know? So we just, we just took it probably to another level, which the coaches thought it wouldn't be taken to, but it was great fun. The other thing I remember being out there watching that test series against New Zealand is that there was a huge rivalry and a, and a huge intensity and there were pressure controversial moments. But at possibly the most contentious moment of the lot, which is the very end of the, of the third test, when the incident happens with the ball, bounces into Ken Owens' arms. It's when you refer to Kieran Reid coming over and doing a little fist pump with you. And I think he says something yeah. like, oh, this oh, is rugby. Now that to me... It's crazy. At a moment like that, I mean, I, I guess that's born out of res- mutual respect for each other. But what, was there a sense during that tour that you all knew that this was, you know, this was quite a special series, as much as anything, because you, you want to beat them. It's the All Blacks, and there's a kind of in, an, in, an intensity to the respect as well. I've never seen an All Black change shirts with, um, or heard of them changing many shirts um, when they just play for New Zealand against Wales, England, Ireland, Scotland, whoever. But every Lions game, they come in to swap. So you realise, crikey, this is how they obviously really value the Lions and yeah. respect the, the, the Lions concept. And like, as, like, obviously we know here how important it is. The Lions is amazing. I think when you're going on a Lions tour and you're playing in a test series, like Ian Reid obviously knew this. You know, I, I think like this as well. And like, I got him in really well, actually. I spoke to him quite a few times after the game in years gone by. And we just talk about the kids. Like, so yeah. he's got, he had uh, two little girls. He had a boy, I think, in the last year. We talk about anything but rugby, you know, a little bit of rugby, mainly about kids and that. And I get on with him really well. Real, genuine, nice guy. So we're going through this game. And uh, you realise when you're in a test match like that, you're, you're part of rugby history, and that's why I, why I want to say the word privilege. And that's you genuinely feel privileged, like you are part of rugby history when you're involved in those test matches. And when he said that, we just had a moment where we let um, let the referee walk off, and he sort of did that, and he just said, "Oh, this is this is rugby, like this yeah. is amazing." I remember thinking, like, what? Like, I was really surprised if you had the frame of mind just to. And then I did that. You just take a step back. You can just look around Eden Park and just think, look what we're doing. Like, this yeah. is incredible. <laughs> this is the pinnacle of what we've aimed to ever do. Um, but yeah, he was he's a top guy, Kieran. I think so much of him. That's why I'm really glad I've got his shirt, one of my most respected opponents. But I didn't think anything of that decision. I remember think waking up the, the morning after and then all the headlines are coming through on my Twitter feed. So I was like, what's all this fuss about with... I've I've saved the, the series or something. I was like, what? <laughs> I, I played all right, like, but I didn't... What? And then I was reading the... Um, reading the articles and it was that decision I didn't even think anything of it even afterwards just completely just thought nothing of it whatsoever so it was the morning after I thought oh they're on about that decision with because I, I just thought well, just what else was I going to do you know that's mm. just I remember I didn't speak to him much that second half whatsoever because there was no need so I'm not going to bother speaking to him if there's nothing to iron out and um, then Owen Fowler was going a bit you know um, as he does on penalty decisions <laughs> and Johnny Sexton so and I heard him say, only the captain. So I thought, oh, I just, what, what, what have I got to lose? I just walk up to him. And I always say, I barely said anything. And speaking to Wayne Barnes after, he sort of said, just the fact that you even walked up would have made him think, all right, there must be, there might be something to check here yeah. because you're not the sort of player who just goes up all the time. And to be perfectly honest, the only reason I can remember what I said is I've heard it back on tapes after. Um, uh, but I think just, just the fact that I think you just calmly walked up to him and just sort of, I was probably looking a bit desperate, maybe in the eyes, like, oh, geez, like, God, look, you know, just, just check. You know, I, I didn't know what he was checking for, if I'm being perfectly honest. Yeah. Just just check. Like, there might be something there. Um, 
but yeah, that was that was enough. And once it went over to the fourth official, it was way out of my hands. So people were saying I saved the series. Like I didn't. I might have just been. I might have contributed. You know, like like the fourth official did, and like all the other players did. By I'm sure Owen Farrell and Johnny complaining like crazy would have put doubts in his mind. So it was just another little thing. But added up together, yeah, maybe it was enough to. And plus, I I don't think an accidental offside is a is a penalty offence. Like you know, if somebody's deli- if Ken caught it and ran off with it, all right, penalty. But the way it happened, it's not a penalty offence. You know, you can you can high tackle someone deliberately and give away the same penalty. I'm like, or equivalent penalty. I'm like, that's it's not that's not fair. Like for me, an accident offside, it should be a free kick, scrum free kick. I think. So I think actually it played out to be fair. So even though maybe by the law book and speaking to refs after, if it's like it sounds too big to call accidental offside, I think I'd have to check on this. If it's like a deliberate accidental offside, like a professional foul, there is a penalty. If it's a genuinely accidental offside, then it is a free kick, apparently. So I don't think we New Zealand were had done by it. it was actually to the to the rule book, apparently. But um, yeah, that's what one well-respected referee told me anyway. The, at the end of that section on that 2017 too, you touch on the dedication that it takes to succeed with the Lions. And the, I mean, it's quite well known. Your your strongest vice is a bar of chocolate, usually, isn't it? You know, uh, <laughs> yeah. Cadbury's fruit and nut or whatever other chocolate yeah. bars available. And um, <laughs> but you 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 talk about the fact that there were a percentage of the squad who were absolutely totally dedicated. Um, you, you talk about some of the people like Farrell and, and Sexton and Alan Wynn. Does that leave a slight feeling with you looking back on it that? more could have been achieved yeah because well no because the test team players were brilliant yeah and you do you quickly find out after week two who's going to be you You try not to and you know there's a chance in yeah but you know if you're penciled to be a probable or a possible you know so um you lose some guys particularly towards the first and second test when they're not picked and they go out and drink but i just think and people like i got a bit of criticism from players about my professional attitude and some players were, were exactly like me some players loved to have a beer which is fine because I understood as I got older some guys just need to have a drink on a Saturday afternoon and they can turn up Monday and be fine as long as it's not to the detriment of your physical capabilities or the or the squads from a PR perspective like getting in trouble are fine do what you want I don't care what you do to relax or chill out but don't make it be to the detriment of the squad and don't bring guys down with you I always said whenever I went on World Cups or Lions tours to actually, when you're on that tour, like I, sac- I, I committed myself, for, I thought, since I was 15, you know, but yeah. just to go on a tour for eight weeks and just to be the best possible pro you can ever be and sacrifice everything. Obviously, when I say sacrifice everything, it doesn't mean you don't speak to your wife or your kids. Obviously, you do that. But from a performance perspective, do everything you can, absolutely everything you can from a nutritional, recovery, performance point of view to make sure that we can win. Because I always say, would Jess Ennis have, when she was in 2012 Olympics, would she have uh, gin and vodka seven days before her heptathlon? I'm pretty sure she didn't, you know? So that's where, and I know if someone said, what, is one vodka going to change you? I'm like, it probably won't. But the mental edge it gives me, knowing that I am absolutely, I've done everything I can, mentally that gives me so much strength and belief that I'm like, 
this guy with the whitewash just isn't as prepared as me. He's not, he hasn't got my genetics. He hasn't got my belief. He hasn't eaten as well as I have. He hasn't trained as well as I have. He, he just can't be as good as me. That That's what it gave me, being like that. I just would say the players, obviously within reason, I'm not saying to live like monks, but just apply yourself the most professional you can for the betterment of the team because if you can do that for seven, eight weeks, you'll then have a lifetime of glory to 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 have from that. So it's, when you actually look back now, it's a, it's a fraction of your life, absolute fraction of your life to commit yourself to be the best version of what you could possibly be. So for me, when I see players go off astray, it frustrates me because I'm thinking, and most guys are brilliant, but there's a couple of guys who probably aren't, like they're amazing players and they're great pros, but they're not the consummate professional. That's why I loved Johnny Wilkinson growing up. And from a Welsh perspective, they're people like Lee Halfpenny and Alan, Alan Wynne-Jones. It's no surprise that they're legendary players. George North, all those guys. Just apply yourself as well as you can because you'll have a lifetime of glory from it. So that's what I was like as a captain. And some, I think, I'll be honest, that was probably too much for some players. They probably didn't like that, but I just constantly wanted to chase excellence all the time. Um, and that's just what I was like as a captain. And maybe some guys like that, you can't please everyone. I know some guys probably would have preferred it, someone else as captain, but that's just what I was like as a, as a leader, really. Mm. Let's talk about the uh, the World Cup that's on the horizon then, um, 2019. How, how do you think the, the warm-ups have gone so far for uh <clears throat> Yeah, like, you know, uh, I remember thinking we had such a good run. I didn't want people to get their hopes up too much for these warm-up games because you're going to have to experiment. Um, Wales have obviously played their, their two, I think they've played the stronger team, their strongest team probably more on the away games because that replicates a World Cup. You know, there's no point protecting your good guys yeah. when you go away from home and play them at home because the World Cup, you're playing away from home. So you've got to get used to that environment. Obviously, Wales would have liked to have won all four games. Realistically, that was never going to happen. Uh, because you know the ch- you want it to happen, of course, but you know by planning. Gatlin could have been selfish on his last home game, picked a full hit out to play Ireland at home. He gets a nice send off, but he knows that's not the best thing for the team. He's got to figure out who's going to go in that thirty-one, the last five spots he was going to pick, and he wants to play his his big hitters then out in the Aviv. That's all part of the planning. But two thousand eleven and fifteen, like we would have had great campaigns. You know, I'd, you know eleven we've talked about. I'd, didn't have injuries to like Adam Jones on the red card and but we had a mixed warm-up match you know we had we won one lost one against England um against Ireland in 2015 we won one lost one had it not been for injuries could have gone for a successful campaign so yes warm-ups are good but but take it with a pinch of salt you know I'll judge Wales I'm not gonna judge Wales off these warm-up matches don't get me wrong they could have looked better they could have looked worse but I, I'll judge them off when they play Georgia, when they play Australia. Australia, the one is for me because we haven't beaten a Southern Hemisphere team in the last two World Cups. And I, like, it's the first thing I always think of, people say, oh, you've been brilliant the last two World Cups. As a team and Percy, I, got, I haven't led Wales to beat a Southern Hemisphere team in the World Cup. And that, that pains me to say that, you know. So we've got to beat, got to beat Australia in the group stage. And I think that that'll be a, an amazing springboard for us to go on and achieve in that World Cup. So for me, that's the big one. Um, but yeah, it's been mixed. It could be better, it could be worse, but Wales can still rock up in good shape. Just like Ireland now. Suddenly people look at Ireland going, they're not looking as bad as, like we were writing off Ireland, not we, sorry, I'm talking generally people out there, we're writing, writing off Ireland. If anybody wants to write off Ireland, you're a fool because what they've done in the last 12 to 18, two years, yeah. that just doesn't, that doesn't just go. Look at this group of England players. They were brilliant for like a 20 game winning streak. Same group of players now, just a couple of bit, bit of youth has been added in. 
are now looking probably the strongest home nations team going into the World Cup. So like teams can rediscover that very quick. You can rediscover that very quick and it's there. So Ireland have got it. It's there for Wales. It's there for England. Um, so that's why this World Cup be brilliant. But yeah, judge Wales off Australia game in the group stages for me. I mean, of course, I mean, what, what you've just done there is your new role, isn't it? As a pundit, really. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 wonder, I wonder what that transition has been like. I mean, I spoke to Tommy Bow recently, who does a lot of um, work on Irish television, he, punditry work and sort of presenting work. And he was saying how it's kind of opened his eyes to the kind of role of the media, which he perhaps, yeah. you know, saw from the other side of the wall. Yeah. You experienced, I mean, you've done so many interviews over the year over the years has it, has it sort of given you a slightly new perspective working within the media uh, yeah it has and I always appreciated the media and I understood it so when um, when I was younger I didn't and then you realise when you get older like just like anything in life, it's a business like mm. these people are just doing their job it's not a personal attack it's just the way it is and you know when you're a rugby player you get um, national recognition you get nice salaries you get nice cars you get free boots all that stuff if somebody wants to talk to you in the papers negatively because you've done something wrong well so be it you know you can't have the rub of the green all the time you know so I quickly realised that with the media I realised that you could use it to your advantage and like it was beneficial and for me it was a platform to try and get out like the positivity of the squad and, and my belief and stuff in the team I'm still like that now I did a piece um with the Times recently and uh, recently like maybe not last six days one before and it was quite negative if I'm being honest I read it and I'm like but that's not me as a person and this is when we were playing I think it was we were playing Australia uh, in the last autumn and I said I, I know the reality is that we've lost 13 times in a row whatever it was and that's happened because we haven't been good enough I'm not shying away from that but I, I said I want this article to be positive because if everybody in the stadium, if you can get seventy thousand people in the stadium who genuinely believe we can beat Australia, and that gets portrayed through all sorts of avenues, and one is the media, and if all the players can truly believe it, and the, and their environment, and their staff, and the medics, and everyone around them, they will have a much better chance of winning. Mm. Fact. So I and I genuinely believe Wales could do it. So I said, I want my article to believe they I, I, they can do it. They can do it, and that was my article. And if that influenced one thousand, ten thousand, twenty, I don't know how many, but if it influenced some people to believe that, then that was a good thing. And that's just what I was like as as a person, as a player, and as a captain. So now in the media. I'm like, well, this is a great platform to try and portray that. And at the same time, I like seeing the challenge of having the casual fan watch rugby who, and we've all been in the pubs. You guys obviously know rugby much better than most other people because you watch so much of it. You've heard people in pubs talking absolute rubbish when they talk about games. <laughs> I'm just thinking, I just want to be that person who can break it down in layman's terms and help the casual fan not listen to some of the rubbish that's out there. <laughs> to actually understand this is what's going on because you, you've heard the guy, somebody who's played for their local rugby club thirds and they're saying they need to do this, they need to do that. It's like, well, with respect, you know, that's actually not. And, and I never put anyone down face-to-face. Someone, I get people saying to me all the time, I don't like him as a player. They should have done this, they should have done that. I never say, well, actually, we do this because of X, Y, Z. I, I let them have their opinion. I don't want to belittle anyone to their face. You know, that's, I, that's not what I'm like. But... I just like that challenge of trying to break the game down and make it more enjoyable and understandable for people. Like a teacher in school, you know, like when you're doing algebra, some people might hate algebra, but you just got to try and break it down to a point where you can understand it, then you actually enjoy it a bit more. That's what I try and do being a pundit with rugby, just make it easier for people to understand really. Hmm. And that that feels to be a sort of of school of rugby journalism that just seems to be sort of coming more prevalent now. You look at like people like Charlie Morgan at the Telegraph, Murray Kinsella. 
it's a lot more sort of screenshot sort of led sort of analysis, yeah. heavy stuff like that. Isn't yeah, it? understanding what's going on, you know. So um, that's what I think the, the the role is as well for, it's obviously one of many roles, of course. People want to know the facts, they want to know the gossip, of course, all that. But for me, I want to come at the angle that I want to try and help educate the game, really. So that's the kind of challenge that I see. And if there's a youth... If there's a youth coach watching or a young player or somebody who's a school teacher watching and I say something about a kick chase or a driving line out or defensive mall or something and they think, oh, I didn't know that, I can take that back to my club. Then I'm like, well, that's my, I'm happy, you know, that somebody's learned something, they can take it back to their environment. So almost like a coach almost, you know, you're trying to be like a really um, simplistic kind of coach, you know, that's what I kind of see that pundit role like. One of the thing, big things that pundits always do is they become coach for the day, don't they? And they like to select the Wales team. Now, you've <laughs> yeah. had it. I, I believe that you've had a little bit of a go at selection yourself uh, recently in terms of the players you've played with for Wales over yeah, the years. I've got to say, I read your article as well. I can't remember who wrote it, sorry, about the best Wales 15 going into this World Cup. And I, I think right now I'd have to agree with that as well. I thought you got it spot on. Um, that certainly wasn't mine. <laughs> <laughs> I can't remember who wrote it. But... Um, yeah, it's a tough one because there's so many great players uh, that I've played with. Uh, do you know when that was all-time 15, was it? The all-time Wales 15 or the one for the World Cup that you want to discuss? I'm not sure. I mean, I think, I think with you, uh, the interesting thing from my perspective is like you played with, I wonder how many Welsh players you did play for in international. Oh, quite, quite a yeah, few, yeah. quite a few. Uh, so it really, I think what you can give the insight is because you played alongside them. So I would think it would be the best Wales 15 that you played with yeah. really I think that that's what would be of yeah. interest to people um, so tight end I start, start with the front row and this is hard because <laughs> I, I'm going to want to justify why which I'm not going to because we'd be afraid I want to justify why I haven't picked certain players but I haven't got time to do that because they've been great but um, say tight end right as a world force uh, in the height of his powers hands down Adam Jones like you know hands down like Wales now we've been used to having um, some, like sometimes it goes it goes good sometimes it goes bad when we have a good day you know you think oh we had a really good day at the scrum I think we took for granted how dominant Adam Jones made scrums like you know it was quite normal just to see the penalty mm. the arm go up for a penalty and I think now he's gone we've taken that for granted a bit as fans Adam Jones tight head prop all day um, for me a hooker is so tough because you've got Matthew Reese who's a test lion Ken Owens who's been a test lion and Richard Hibbard but for me the most destructive hooker we've had and I think modern day like you look at the t- the best front fives in the world they've got athletes who can carry and hit and contribute in the loose as well as the set piece for me Richard Hibbard at his peak was was brilliant you know mm. absolutely brilliant and, and a real iconic player for Wales really like cult hero I say Richard Hibbard um, Lou said Gethin Jenkins don't even need to think about that no disrespect to any other player but just like an all-time great genuine all-time great I, I can't speak highly enough of Gethin but everything he brought to the game absolutely everything on and off the field second row um, again similar with Adam Wynn don't even need to think about that one uh, the other one then for me would have been Luke Charteris because mm. in the 2011 World Cup he was magnificent when you hit rucks in a game, and this is the thing where people go, well, you hit rucks. I'm like, oh, yeah, but it's so valuable when you've got somebody who can do this who's 125, 128 kilos and is punishing people. He hit something like I hit on a good game, I'll hit mid 30s, maybe 40 rucks, absolute maximum. I would have done that not even a handful of times. Luke Charis hit 60 rucks in Samoa, um, and he's and he's, he's carrying this, he's carrying 100 and. 
30 kilo nearly frame around. Mm. His engine, his toughness is incredible. Line-out mall defence, I think the best line-out mall defender I've ever seen play the game. I don't know anyone who is better than him. Teams almost just wouldn't even bother going for a mall against us <laughs> because you could just get his octopus arms through there. <laughs> and as the leader as well, what people won't see, he'll be at training going bang, bang, bang. We're doing this in defence, this, 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 this. Like, you know, he's a real leader. There's times he's got... We've been in sticky situations in games. I remember thinking, he could captain Wales. He's got the boys in. When I've been captain and he's spoken to the forwards and I wanted to run through a brick wall for him. Like he's, he's a brilliant leader as well. So um, for me, Luke Charteris. Um, back row would have been the back that I played with the majority of my career. Toby and Dan Lydia, because Dan is probably the most devastating tackler we saw in the height of his powers. Toby is just the most gifted all-round rugby player that I've ever, personally ever seen. And then that's tough then because you leave out Justin Tipperick, who's also a once in a generation player, who's very special. But, well, no, I guess if I'm not picking myself, I pick Justin, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> and I've always said, when I played against people who were the best open sides in the world, they go, Pocock, McCaw, uh, Francois Lowe was great, Thierry Dessertois, George Smith, Phil Wall, playing against all these boys, only those the last two in my early days. Um but I was like, well, and Justin, you know, J- Justin is, you know, when he's been playing well, he's one of the most influential sevens that, the, that we've seen. So um, I'll, I'm going to put myself as a retired player and I'm gonna, I'll put Justin back at seven. Coach. Um, yeah, I'll be coach yeah, yeah. for this for this 10 minutes. Um, number nine, uh, Mike Phillips, just ultimate competitor in like 2013 Lions Tour, 11 World Cup, you know, brilliant when he, Mike Phillips. Number 10, I found really, really tricky, but I, I have to go with the experience and he's a test starting line, Stephen Jones. I think, like people probably see, like we all knew he's an amazing leader anyway. But now he's into coaching. It makes you understand how much he understands the mm. game, his leadership qualities. You know, as a coach, for it to lose him, I think from the game, if he just finished and didn't go into coaching, it'd be a real loss for Welsh rugby because he's such a good guy as well. Really nice personality. He gets on with everyone, but his knowledge on the game experience he's had you know test starting British Lion like it's incredible so Stephen Jones at 10 for me Jamie Roberts at 12 was the most devastating 12 in World Rugby back in 2009 probably through to 2011 uh, devastating I did say 12 didn't I not mm. 9 devastating inside centre at a time when that was the game plan and that worked and that's what you needed to do and as a defensive player as well how many times did he come up the line and absolutely buckle people you know and it was a real momentum changer for us and as a, another leader as well he could have been captain for Wales um Jamie is number 12. Obviously, John Davis, 13. Amazing 13, who can do everything. Uh, wingers then, George North in his peak was just a, a freak, absolute freak of a player. And I think he's getting back to those levels now. Physically, he's looking so good after this preseason. Um, obviously, Shane Williams on the wing. Closest thing to not knowing what to do, just give the ball to Shane and see what happens. <laughs> and he's got Wales. How many times he got Wales out of a sticky yeah. patch? You know, so many times we won games which doesn't happen, I think, these days too much international level, but we single-handedly won games because of Shane. Like, we did. Um, and full-back, oh, I can't remember who I picked in the book because it's such a close one between... I think it was Halfpenny. Yeah, Halfpenny and Liam Williams. I had to pick my team recently, actually, for the World Cup. And it actually, it actually pains me to pick between those two because very opposite players, but both bring incredible amount of... The good things they do are, are world-class. So... Um, that's the one I'm gonna have to sit on the fence on. I can't, I can't even remember which one I picked because my my opinion would change daily. But Lee, Lee Arfin and Liam Williams, blessed to have either one of them. You know, when they're both playing at their very best, they've been incredible. Like Lee, Lee, Lee Arfin, he should have won in my eyes World Player of the Year back in 2013. Yeah. You know, so when you're talking plays, and, and then Liam Williams had the season of his life. How can I pick between them two? They should, they both Liam Williams should be nominated probably for World Player of the Year if he has a good World Cup. So I just can't. 
can't separate 40 minutes each for both of them 40 minutes each that's a very good way that's what I'll do the best answer you can give for your publishers is you'll have to buy the book yeah. to find out <laughs> Let's scrap that last three. Let me check that in. That's not a bad side, is it? Yeah. It's not the worst. Yeah, decent team. Not too bad. Indeed. Um, finally, when is when is the book out then? Let's... Uh, so it's out... Um, I hope this is right. <laughs> 19th September. Uh, 19th of September is out, you know. It's just kind of like in timing with the World Cup and stuff. So yeah, got a little bit of book PR, doing some book signings coming up over the next sort of... Uh, few weeks which will keep you busy um but yeah it seems to be well received so far but um i'm not gonna be here like oh you must go buy it you know but i guess if uh probably want a little bit of a different unexpected insight to professional rugby career it might be yeah. a good place I think to start me and simon have both read it i think I we think can probably the, say uh, that yeah. <laughs> i think the back cover showing the scar on the back of your neck sums it all up yeah it's quite poignant that and it was their idea uh, they said about the scar and i thought yeah because it's because it does relate a lot to the injury side of things and the collision sport because mm. that's what's going to appeal probably to people outside of the world of rugby but um yeah talks about all my operations we haven't really touched on decision to finish and i think we'll leave that for people when they read the book because that for me is a is a it's a fascinating chapter and uh, yeah I, oh, mean, thank I, you. I read it in a yeah. couple of days and I really enjoyed it and I uh, hope it does well for you thank you very much no, great to talk to you guys thanks for having yeah, me myself included I read it last night 11 o'clock after, <laughs> after a very long weekend in Dublin so yeah. I was probably, uh, probably more emotional than I should have been <laughs> no thanks very much appreciate that lads Cheers. we'll do uh, one more question very quick fire and that is what's, the, what's, what's this going to be now where do you think Wales will end up in the World Cup Ooh. I think the semi-final I think, sorry, because I can't do it in one, in one word. If we lose to Australia, um, it'll hinder our chances massively. If we beat Australia, I'm going to get very excited about going very far. So I think that's why I think the Australia game is so important. That's a brilliant place to leave the podcast. Uh, Sam, massive thank you for coming in. Best of luck with the book. Thank you very um, much. We've got a few extracts coming out in the next few days from Sam's book, so keep an eye out for them. Uh, but for all the latest Welsh rugby news, you can catch it all on Wales Online. <laughs>